Good morning, everybody. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the others. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's start a revolution. Oh, beautiful it is. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ben Fredrickson. Welcome here this morning. I have the privilege of serving as the Young Adults and Care Ministries Pastor here at North Langley. Welcome to all of you, especially if you are new today, um, and if you are new to Jesus. We are so glad that you are here this morning. Perhaps you are here because you are, you're intrigued by the series that we're in, The Jesus Revolution. Um, in this series, we're looking at seven values, right, that our culture takes for granted, and we are following the breadcrumbs, to use Matthew's expression, back to their source in the Jesus Revolution. We're asking the question, how is it that in the West, in 21st century Canada, we've come to believe in things like equality and compassion and consent and freedom and progress and enlightenment and science? According to author Glenn Scrivener, these are the air we breathe. We've become so used to them, we've forgotten their original source in Christianity. Okay, you might be wondering, I heard a few uh, chuckles as I came up here this morning, you might be wondering, what's up with the lab coat and the bow tie this morning? I am doing my best to channel my inner Bill Nye the science guy for you here this morning uh, for our message on science. 
When, when uh, Pastor Matthew asked me to preach on science, um, my first thought was that classic Jack Black comedy, Nacho Libre. Uh, okay, Nacho Libre might not seem like a normal, natural inspiration for a sermon, um, but there's a great line from that movie that a lot of people, I think, probably resonate with um, about religion and science. Maybe if you've seen the movie, you know this line, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you've, you've probably heard someone use that phrase, or maybe you're here this morning and that describes your assumptions. You, you see, for many people today, on either side, atheists or Christians, science and faith seem to be in conflict. You have to choose one or the other. What I want to do today is try to show you how science and faith are not incompatible. In fact, I'm going to make an argument that it's the Christian understanding of the world, of God, and of humanity that actually led to the development of modern science as we have it and makes science possible. Let me repeat that. A Christian understanding of who God is, the world, and humanity makes science possible. So today we're going to do two related things. The, the first is we're going to look at some of those specifically Christian beliefs that give rise to science. And then we're going to look at the history of how science developed within a Christian framework. And along the way, try to dispel that myth that Christianity is anti-science. Our hypothesis, to put it in good science terms, could it be that something as ubiquitous as science that we take for granted every time we flick on a light switch or get in our cars to drive is actually a very Christian contribution to the world? Like good scientists, uh, let's put on our lab coats, let's test that hypothesis, let's follow the breadcrumbs and see where it leads. Um, and this is actually probably a good time to take off this lab coat because it's a little warm up here. But will you pray with me as we dive into our topic today? Creator and sustainer of the universe, we stand in awe of all that you have made. And I pray this morning that you would open up our eyes and hearts to your truth wherever we discover it. Guide us by your spirit, we ask. And in the words of the psalmist, Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, some of you are already wondering, though, why does this topic really matter? Maybe you're like most people, you're happy to benefit from the from the fruits of modern science and technology. You've got to love that iPhone, right? Uh, but not overly concerned with how science fits into a Christian worldview. Let me give you a couple of reasons of why I think this matters. First, because truth is important. Truth is important. As Christians, we believe that God is the ultimate author of all truth in both the natural world and in Scripture. And we can actually hold together these truths as Christians. Let's check out this short one-minute clip from the Alpha videos. This is a great clip that summarizes really well what I'm trying to say here with Oxford mathematician John Lennox. There's a widespread impression on the public that science and God don't mix. And that's curious because if you think of the rise of science in the 16th and 17th centuries, all its pioneers believed in God. In fact, they were Christian in some sense or other. You talk about Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and so on. Kepler famously said, we're thinking God's thoughts after him. 
So far from their belief in God hindering their science, it was the very motive that drove it. Because they believed in a creator, a rational spirit behind the universe, they thought that science was worth doing, and so they did it. So I'm not remotely embarrassed at saying I'm both a scientist and a Christian, because arguably Christianity gave me my subject. We study God's revelation both in the natural world and in scripture with the minds that God has given us. And I believe there's no conflict ultimately between those two sides properly understood. Okay, thanks John Lennox. Don't things just sound a lot smarter in an Oxford accent? <laughs> and, and, and you know a guy is smart when he has like that many letters after his name? Like, that's a lot of letters. Okay, smart guy John Lennox. And I love his quote from Johannes Kepler. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. Well, we'll see later how it was precisely Christians like Kepler who were actually at the forefront of the Christian, or sorry, of the scientific revolution. Okay, second reason why I believe this matters. Because I think as Christians, we should not be afraid of being engaged in science. It makes me sad as a young adults pastor, I sometimes hear stories of bright young Christians who feel forced to choose between their faith uh, in God and their love, their passion for science. Um, that's a pressure that can come from both sides. Sometimes it's from family or from church that says, don't, don't study science, you're going to lose your faith when you go to university. Sometimes it comes from the university atheistic side, and it, it's professors or peers who, who look down on Christians as ignorant or gullible. A third reason why I believe this matters is that I believe God is honored when we use our minds to understand the amazingly beautiful and intricate world he has made. Science can actually help us cultivate a sense of wonder at creation and awe and gratitude for the creator, something that kids innately have, and, and I believe Scientists at their best are actually little kids who, who are just filled with awe and wonder at what God has made. And doing science can be an act of worship. I, I should acknowledge that I am not a scientist. Uh, as you all know, my day job is as a pastor. But I've always had a love for science and the natural world. Um, I grew up with a dad who was a medical doctor. Our family had subscriptions to National Geographic magazine and also Scientific American. Um, my favorite student job in college, by the way, was, was doing weekly bird surveys in the local forest preserve. So yes, I have a bit of amateur science nerd in me. The stories that we tell about the world matter. What, what, what do I mean by that? Well, well, the biggest stories that we tell help us answer the big questions, like where do we come from? Why are we here? What's our purpose as human beings? Let's check out a few of those stories to see how they answer the, those big questions. Uh, and, and remember, I'm, I'm trying to make the argument that science develops out of a specifically Christian view of God and the world. Before we look at that Christian view, though, let's compare it to a few other stories and, and see, is this where we maybe got science from? How might they answer those big questions? The first, ancient Near Eastern cosmogenies. For example, the Babylonian Enuma Elish. Th these are creation stories that were around at the same time as Genesis was composed, just to give you some, some biblical context. In the Babylonian story, uh, we read how the world was created out of this battle between the warring gods. You had one victorious god, Marduk, who, who made the world out of the defeated god, Tiamat, out of the carcass of her body, splitting her body into the land, into, into the sky, 
And then humans are actually created as sort of as an afterthought. The gods say, oh, we need somebody to serve us, to do all the work for us, so then humans get made from the blood of another defeated god. Here's a really cheerful story, right? What are you guys? Uh, we are the blood of gods made to serve them. In the ancient Babylonian view, and in many other similar stories about the world, events in the natural world are, are controlled by unpredictable, sort of temperamental gods. This is not really a basis for doing science. Okay, here's another option, another view. Ancient Greek philosophy. This is the view that would have been common, for the example, at the time of Jesus. And in the Greek philosophical view, and I'm kind of summarizing a couple of different Greek views together here, but the universe always existed. Uh, in, in that sense, it's similar to other belief systems like Hinduism or Buddhism that have a more cyclical view of time, right? The, the universe is on this endless repeat cycle. And, and for, the, for the ancient Greeks, the, the world that we live in here, like the, 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 the stuff that we have here, is actually just a reflection of a sort of immaterial realm, the, the perfect realm of the forms. And the way to get to truth is by thinking your way up to that perfect world, not by observing what we see here. Not a very good basis for doing science, right? When science is all about paying attention to what we have right in front of us here. Now, I should acknowledge the Greeks, of course, did give us lots of different things, lots of advances in math and other areas of knowledge. Uh, but, but philosophers and scientists would agree that their, their particular view of God actually limited them when it came to advancing science. Okay, third option, and this is actually just a modern atheistic view, a materialist view of the universe. And materialism here in this context just means that everything is just stuff. It's just matter. There's no purpose and there's no God behind it. Uh, this account says everything came from the Big Bang. There's no purpose. There's no creator who started the universe. Humans are just a random byproduct of evolution, and they have no special status among other animals. For example, here's what evolutionary biologist, outspoken atheist, Richard Dawkins writes in his book, The God Delusion. He writes, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. See, for Dawkins, faith in God is at best a spiritual, private matter, and at worst, it's, it's a hindrance to advancing science and human progress. But, but this supposedly scientific and rational view is, is actually very limiting in other ways. It has no explanation for God and no room for the spiritual realm, or even for things like beauty or kindness. Taken to its logical conclusion, it, it, it's a very depressing worldview. I think you'd agree. Can you see how each one of these stories is making a claim about God, or the absence of God, about the world that we live in and our place in it? So let's, let's turn now to that uniquely Christian view of God and the world. How does it make science possible, unlike those other ancient worldviews or even the modern atheistic view? How does it account for all of reality, physical and spiritual? Let me try to give you three key aspects of the Christian view. Um, if you like alliteration, they all start with F, so we're going to call them our F factors. It's going to help you remember them. Um, I'm going to just acknowledge, I'm taking all of these from Glenn Scrivener's book and then just kind of unpacking them a bit more for us this morning here. The first is the freedom of God. 
the freedom of God to create the universe. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's a Hebrew word, way of saying everything, heavens and earth, everything. The universe has a beginning. And God chooses to create the universe freely, not as it must be according to our preconceptions. That's massive when you think of the implications for science. If you want to understand the universe, you actually have to look at what it is, what's out there. You can't just think your way up to a perfect realm like the Greeks thought. The entire premise of modern science, right, it's based on this. You make observations, you come up with a hypothesis, and then you test that in experiments against and in the real world. So Christians believe that God chooses to create the universe, and he creates it with a, with a purpose. The fancy Greek word for that is teleological, from the word telos, for purpose. The God who creates, as Christians we believe, is a person not an impersonal sort of force who just started the world and left it to run on its own. As Christians, we believe that God created the world out of an overflow of his love, out of a desire to create something good, something beautiful, to make himself known, and ultimately in order to be in relationship with us, the creatures who bear his image. The universe reveals a purposeful, relational God, not blind, pitiless indifference. Uh, another uniquely Christian belief is that God creates ex nihilo, to use the Latin term, not out of primordial stuff like the bodies of dead gods. And the universe is not eternal. It has a beginning, unlike the Greek or the Hindu belief, for example. And, and that is a claim that is backed up by modern astronomy. In chapter 1 of Genesis, that creation story, we read how God speaks creation into existence by the power of his word. He says, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be giant red cedars and snow-capped mountains and Chinook salmon and huge grizzly bears and soaring bald eagles, and there were. And at the end of that creation story in chapter 1, we read, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So our first claim is the freedom of God to create a good, beautiful world with purpose. Second, figure out ability. Do you like that word, figure out ability? Uh, basically, that means that the world is ordered in such a way that we can figure out things about it. Uh, the more technical term for that would be comprehensibility, but that word doesn't start with F, so figure out ability. God is a God of order who creates a world with regular constants and laws that we can discover and use predictions to make about how the world runs. Pretend you're Isaac Newton for a moment, take an apple, drop it, guess what? Thanks to the law of gravity, every time it will fall to the ground, right? Do you see how radically different that is from other views of the world, which believe that the gods or sort of unknowable spiritual forces were making things happen? You've heard of Albert Einstein, right? Yes, that Einstein, one of the most brilliant scientific minds ever. Here's what Einstein has to say about the figure-out ability of the world. He says, the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. The fact that it's comprehensible is a miracle. Wow, that's Albert Einstein calling this a miracle. Comprehensibility, it's something that scientists take for granted in their work, and yet without it, science would be entirely impossible. 
And as Christians, we believe that God is the ultimate author of that miracle of comprehensibility. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 19, which uh, Debbie read before the message this morning. It, It points to that amazing sense in which creation actually reflects the order of God. Listen to those opening verses again. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. When astronomers peer through the James Webb telescope into the depths of space at galaxies forming literally thousands of light years away, they are witnesses to the heavens declaring the glory of God. Um, That image on your screen, by the way, is of something astronomers call the pillars of creation. Just these massive clouds of dust and gas where little baby stars are being formed. I think that is so cool, and I love that name for it. The universe itself pours forth praise to God and knowledge of the Creator, and we get to be witnesses to it. Okay, bonus factor. Bonus factor for you guys here today at the 11 o'clock service. Fine-tuning. Here's a little 2.5, factor 2.5. Many scientists, Christians or not, uh, they they will point to a principle of fine-tuning in the way the universe is ordered. The laws of physics, of chemistry, of biology are all exquisitely tuned for life to exist here on Earth. Change any one of those physical constants, the speed of light, the force of gravity, uh, strong or weak nuclear forces, and and we wouldn't exist. The universe wouldn't exist. Uh, Even a staunch atheist like Richard Dawkins has admitted that if there's one thing that might change his mind to believe in God, it's this fine-tuning of the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Okay, there's a second part, a corollary to this figure-out ability of the world, and that is how we as puny human beings can even begin to comprehend the universe in the first place. It is remarkable. Finite human beings on a small planet in a galaxy far, far away can somehow plumb the depths of the universe. Listen to how another psalm, Psalm 8, speaks of this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. What are human beings that you care about us, the psalmist asks God. And, and I picture the psalmist, you know, under a sky in, in Israel, a night sky in Israel thousands of years ago, just marveling at the millions of stars above him. Excuse me. <coughs> By the way, that is, that is one of the things that I miss about living in the high desert of New Mexico, where I grew up. I, I remember camping on clear summer nights, just laying out under the stars and just being absolutely blown away. You can see that distinct band of the Milky Way galaxy just arcing across the heavens. And if you're patient and you stay out long enough, you will see dozens of shooting stars just flying across the sky. Um, If you want to feel really small and insignificant, and yet also just be in total awe and wonder of God, um, spend a couple of hours, some clear night sky, probably in a warm sleeping bag. Psalm 8 and the story of creation in the Bible, they they teach us that God created human beings in God's image. 
We're created by God to, be, to have dominion, to rule over the rest of creation as his representatives. Listen to Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God, as we talked about in our first sermon in this series on equality, right? I think part of that image of God, that imago dei, is actually the ability that we have to think about the universe. We are made a little lower than the angels, able to think about the mysteries of the universe. This is the Christian view of God and the world and our place in it. And it's the worldview which led directly to modern science. Now, I realize that for some that might still sound like a controversial claim. If you recall from Pastor Tim's sermon last week on the Enlightenment, um, there's, a, there's a popular myth that the Christian church and belief in God held back intellectual progress and science. You've probably encountered this view, that the medieval church was against science, and it wasn't until the so-called scientific revolution that we finally sort of threw off the shackles of, of ignorance and faith and humanity could really progress. That, that is still a popular view today. Uh, it is also false. Um, this view is sometimes called the conflict thesis, and it was popularized actually by two authors in the late 19th century. Um, if you want to know more about how this myth kind of developed and why it's so popular today, check out a book called Of Popes and Unicorns. Great title, right? Of Popes and Unicorns. Um, or just the interview with the authors on the Unbelievable podcast, which is what I listen to. But basically, to, to sum up the argument here, historians today, both secular and Christian, they, they would recognize that that conflict thesis is false. Science was not the product of, of atheism or an atheistic age of enlightenment. Instead, it developed in the context of medieval Christian theology and that pursuit of knowledge in all spheres, including in nature. Listen to how one theologian, David Bentley Hart, puts it. He writes, in the 16th and 17th centuries, Christian scientists educated in Christian universities following a Christian tradition of scientific and mathematical speculation overturned a pagan cosmology and physics and arrived at conclusions that would have been unimaginable within the confines of the ancient Greek scientific tradition. Here's a cool little uh, fact that I, that I discovered in, in my research. Of the top 52 scientists who are associated with the so-called scientific revolution, 51 were Christians, according to Rodney Stark, a historian in his book, Bearing False Witness. I am not great at math, but that seems like a pretty high percentage, right? 51 of 52. Just to give you a quick overview of some of those Christians working as scientists 400 and 500 years ago, here are a few. Copernicus, first to propose a model of the heliocentric solar system. Galileo, the father of observational astronomy and general genius. Johannes Kepler, first to recognize that planets moved in elliptical, not circular orbits. Isaac Newton, first to propose the theory of gravity and lots of other laws of physics. Robert Boyle, the, the father of modern chemistry, and Francis Bacon, the developer of the scientific method. These scientists were all Christians, and many of them were devoted and pious in their faith. Some of them were even priests and bishops. Here, here's a quote from Copernicus that reflects what many of them would have believed about their work as scientists. 
He writes, To know the mighty works of God, to comprehend the wonderful workings of his law, surely all this must be a pleasing, acceptable mode of worship to the Most High. Or remember that great quote from Johannes Kepler from the video with John Lennox, Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. Okay, some of you astute listeners, uh, if you haven't tuned out yet, you will notice that I had Galileo on that list of scientists. And you're thinking, wait, hang on. Galileo, didn't the Catholic Church silence him and condemn his heretical heliocentric view? Well, yes and no. It's a bit more complicated, right? As most things are in history. Just to give you a quick summary of the Galileo affair, um, at the time, there was actually still an ongoing debate about whether the Earth or the Sun was at the center of what we now call the solar system. Um, a lot of astronomers still believed that the Earth was at the center. And so the, the church actually picked a side in this ongoing scientific debate, which is probably not something they should have done. Uh, it didn't really help, though, that Galileo had a massive ego, as uh, his writings attest, and he insulted the Pope in writing. Not a good idea. So Galileo was actually sentenced to house arrest, not prison, as is popularly believed, and he remained a committed Christian for the rest of his life. Okay, we've looked at two of the F factors in a Christian view of the world. God's freedom to create and the figure-out ability of the world. We're going to quickly touch on a third factor, and that is fallibility, and we'll cover this one a lot shorter here. Fallibility essentially means that we as human beings are prone to fail. The creation story that we read in Genesis 1 and 2, it, it goes very quickly into Genesis 3 and the story of the fall that we read there, of how human beings chose their own way instead of God's path. And one of the consequences that we as Christians believe happened out of the fall is actually that our thinking is also askew. We, we can't think clearly or perfectly anymore. It's not just that we do bad things, but actually that our thinking is not always clear. And that has a couple of implications for our pursuit of science. Um, I think it means that we need to approach science with humility. Though we are a little lower than the angels, we are not God. And there's a limit to our understanding of the world. All of us are prone to things like confirmation bias, believing what we want to believe. And, and we all have blind spots. I think the best scientists have that humility. Uh, they have a willingness to be challenged, to be proven wrong if, if necessary, and, and to revise their conclusions based on the evidence. Uh, seeking the truth should be an ongoing effort, both for us as Christians following God and for scientists in their science. Uh, just on a really practical level for how science is done, the principle of fallibility means science has things like blind studies that try to eliminate bias, peer reviews to have others check your work, and experiments that should be repeatable. Okay, I hope I've made, uh, in the short time that we've had this morning, a good case for how Christianity and science are not only compatible, but actually directly related. But I recognize that there are still going to be some disagreements, uh, especially among Christians today, when it comes to some pretty big questions in science. And uh, those would be especially around the origins of life and the theory of evolution. I had to throw in the E word this morning, I'm sorry. There it is. There are Christians uh, who would reject the theory of evolution entirely. Uh, but other Christians who have found ways to, to reconcile evolution as a way of understanding the natural world with a belief in God as the creator and what we see in the Bible about who Jesus is. They've, they've found ways to, to 
to hold those things together. Um, this is not the place, or, or I don't have the time either, uh, to make all the arguments one way or the other on that. Um, but if that's something you're interested in, feel free to chat with me. I'd love to talk more, or there are lots of great books to kind of dive into that as well. Regardless of where you land on some of those specific debates and disagreements, um, here are some, I, I would call, basic Christian beliefs about the world that I think all Christians would affirm. First, again, God created the world. Second, God created the world with purpose. It's a purpose that we actually see fulfilled uh, in Revelation 21, that picture of the future of creation. It's actually a new heavens and a new earth, a redeemed, renewed creation in which God dwells with his people. I love that picture. That's where this is all headed. Human beings are created in God's image, and thus we have a special place of responsibility in the creation. And finally, God loves the world he has created. And God is actually intimately involved in sustaining and upholding the universe by his breath at all moments. If you want to read another beautiful psalm that talks about that, Psalm 104 is just a beautiful song about creation and God's place in sustaining it. So, let's go back to that why question. Why, as Christians, should we care about the foundations of science? Why, why should this matter to you, and, and, and how do we start to apply this? Um, my daughters, I have two daughters, they're age two and three and a half right now. Um, they love that why question. Uh, parents of toddlers, you're, you're hearing this a lot these days, right? Why? Why, Papa? Why, Papa? Why, Papa? And sometimes I just have to get to a point where I say, winter, because that's how it is, right? Yeah. The other morning, um, I, I heard them as they woke up in their room, chatting to each other in their cribs. And this is the conversation here. Wren, little Wren, she's two. Winter, why? Winter's response, because that's how it is. Why winter? Because that's how it is. That went on for a couple minutes. So let's look at that why question again. Why? Because truth matters. And as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of the truth. God reveals himself in both creation and in scripture, and we can pursue truth being confident that God will not deceive us. Why? Because I think Christians should be engaged in serious science, and many of them are. There, there are intellectually compelling and honest ways to believe in God as the creator and still to be a cutting-edge mathematician, geologist, astronomer, biologist, doctor, engineer. Why? Because doing science, investigating the world, is a way of honoring God with our minds. Along with Copernicus, we could even say that it is an act of worship. So in closing, how might this apply to you this morning? Uh, for the Christians here uh, in the room, I hope you feel encouraged to see science not as a threat, but as a way of pursuing God's truth in the natural world. And maybe you've been challenged today to think a little bit deeper about those connections, and you want to do some more reading. Um, for those who, who might have said, ah, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, I hope that I've helped you to see that you might not be so far off from God after all. Could it be that your love of science is actually a gift from the Creator who made you in His image and He is actually delighted as you explore more of His world? I encourage you, if that's you, just to, to keep following those breadcrumbs, right? In history and in science and just discover where God is leading you. And I believe that at the end of all your discovering, you will find God. 
For all of us, here's just a little practical application that you might find fun to do on a clear night sometime this fall, is just to go out and marvel at the universe, at the stars and the heavens and what God has made. And take Psalm 19, take Psalm 8 with you, take your Bible with you, and read those words as a prayer of gratitude to the Creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. What's the message that we get as we study the universe? What is the knowledge that the skies are proclaiming to us? Well, Christians, of course, believe in more than just a creator who started the world and let it keep running on its own. We believe that at the true center of the universe is not the sun or a massive black hole, but actually a person. The person, a person who loves us, a God who loves the world, who chose to enter into the world, becoming a human being, walking the dusty roads of Galilee in the person of Jesus. All the clues in the universe ultimately point to him, to Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, we read this remarkable hymn to Christ. Listen to these words here from Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Will you pray with me as we close? Creator God, again we praise you and we thank you for your wonderful creation. We are in awe of all that you have made. Uh, but we thank you most of all for the gift of your son Jesus, uh, who reveals you to us and the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together forever and ever. Amen.